The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We're coming to uh, this treasure trove of prayers from Paul in Ephesians this week and next week looking at Philippians and in Colossians at his prayers there and considering truly momentarily these prayers. There's no way to unpack them fully in the time uh, that we have allotted. But I would encourage you, if you want to learn more about how to pray, read these prayers. I have an app on my phone called Audible. I'd encourage many of you to, any of you to get it, and you just listen to the scriptures read to you. Different versions, different voices from all around the world with different dialects and sounds, men and women reading it, and I just listened to it, and for the last month, all I've been listening to is Ephesians, just being wrapped and enraptured in the words of Paul as he came into the context of the glory of who God is in our salvation, and he prayed that way. And so this morning, as we look at these prayers briefly, I want you to remember by way of introduction just a couple of things. First, the audience of these prayers is Christian. The audience of these prayers is Christian. Paul says, for, I, uh, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. Uh, so these are for uh, Christians. So if you're not a Christian, you may go, oh, then what am I listening for? Well, what you're going to hear within them is something that's incredibly important for you. You're going to hear the mysteries of the beauty of the gospel itself, of what you're being invited into and what you're actually missing out on by standing outside and gazing into the beauty but not stepping in fully. And so we know the audience is Christian. We know the source of everything that Paul is asking for in these prayers is God himself. He says that. He says that in 117. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you these things. And then in the prayer in chapter 3, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be. So Paul understood that these are not things that we gain by obedience, these are not things that we gain by doing certain things, that the source of these things that we are asking for, that Paul is asking for, are from God himself, who is a loving and generous father, who Christ taught and said, if you earthly fathers would give bread to your children if they asked for it and not a serpent, how much more would your heavenly father give to you all things if you come and ask? And so we have a loving Father, and so we know that He is the source. We pick up uh, that the context of these prayers uh, was that of suffering. It, it was first century uh, Christianity. Uh, this is Asia Minor. This is modern-day uh, Turkey. This is within the Roman Empire. You had Roman emperors who hated the church who were persecuting the church, who were burning Christians, who were sending Christians in uh, to the Colosseum to be torn apart by uh, lions and by gladiators and uh, to look, and it was a spectacle and a sport. We look at mixed martial arts and UFC and boxing now and go, hey, this is great, and we go and we watch Prim League and we watch football and basketball and baseball. This was their entertainment, my friends. 
to see our brothers and sisters, our families absolutely decimated in the most horrific of ways. And Paul was writing to the church. But it's fascinating in that context that notice Paul never prays about their circumstances. He never prays for a new emperor. He never prays that their circumstances are changed. He doesn't pray uh, for their poverty. He doesn't pray about their economic situation. He doesn't pray about circumstance. It doesn't mean that we should never pray about circumstance. Elsewhere, Paul speaks to Timothy, and he teaches him to pray in these ways. And even Jesus said, pray for your daily bread. And so it's not wrong to pray that. But recognize primarily what Paul was praying. When he was on bent knee, and by the way, if you read in Scripture, most of the times it says that they stood and prayed. Even Jesus said, when you stand to pray, but a bent knee meant a prayer of urgency. It meant a prayer of crying out. It meant something that was so deep and guttural. And Paul was saying, their circumstances are important, and I, and I hate that those things are what they are, but that's not what's most important. What's most important is these things. And Paul is saying, if you don't have what I'm talking about here, your life goes along and very well. You could become incredibly proud but you're most of all going to be a superficial person. But if you don't have the things that I'm talking about and your life circumstances go terribly wrong, you become despondent and lose faith. And Paul was saying the most important thing that you need, and as you come this morning, the most important thing on your mind, maybe you're here today because relationships in your life are breaking down and you thought, i got to get to church and they'll fix my relationship. Maybe you're here physically in ailment and you're going, I've got to get to church. I've got to start doing it. I need God to fix my health. I need God to fix my finances. I need God to do this. What Paul would say is what you need more than anything else is what's offered in these prayers. And so what I'm going to give you is an absolute primer on this, and I want you to know that. I'm going to talk at a high level. We're going to touch on these things at a high level. We'll go into them a little bit deeper uh, in next week. Uh, but generally speaking, we're touching on these at a, at a high level this morning. And the reason I'm doing that is not only on time restriction, but the reason I do that is I want to entice you to go and to study these things further, to allow the sermon to simply be the catalyst for you uh, to go and to search out God's Word and to pray and to do these things uh, rather than being the end result of your work. And the first thing that we're going to look at is that Paul prays that we would know the truth. The second thing that Paul prays is that we would experience the truth. And then the last thing that we're going to look at is how do we do that. So it's that Paul is praying that we would know the truth, that we would experience the truth, and then he gives us tools on how uh, to appropriate those two things. What Paul is really dealing with is the very thing that we've dealt with almost uh, throughout all of the ages. And that's when people say, well, I get it up here, but I just don't get it down here. Paul is saying, you need to know the truth, but you also need to experience what you know to be true. And so knowing the truth, Paul begins, uh, and he says, know the truth. 
I want you to know what you have, is really what he's saying. He goes, I want you to know the hope of his calling. That's what Paul begins with. I want you to know the hope of his calling. He who has called you. What are the riches of this glorious inheritance? I want you to know the hope of his calling. It's because of him, by the way, that you're a Christian if you're a Christian. It's a humbling statement. And some of you are going, this is sounding a little bit like, hmm, election and predestination. Well, those are words that Paul used in Ephesians. And what he was saying was this. I want you to know something. Your salvation was never about you. Your salvation was always about God. That's what Christ prayed in John 17. Father, thank you that you gave these to me out of the world. You didn't give me all who were in the world, but gave me these who were out of the world, and none of them except the son of perdition have been lost, that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Paul is saying this, one of the most glorious things that you can know about your relationship with God is that the God of the universe before foundation of time and space called you to be his child. Isn't that awesome? If you know anything about your heart, if you know anything about your life, you recognize that you're not all that. We say regularly, cheer up, you're worse than you want to believe that you are. And how is that a cheer up? Well, it's a cheer up in the next statement. I know my heart, and I know that none seek God, no, not one, that I am dead in my sins and trespasses, Ephesians chapter 2, that these things are true. But this is what I also know, that God called me to be his own, based solely upon his mercy and his grace, not because he looked through the portals of time and saw that I would choose him. No, my friends. R.C. Sproul said it the best. Yes, we choose God ultimately, or at some point, but God has to change the chooser so that we will choose him, or else we never will. We would stay lost Paul is saying that this doctrine of God's calling us to himself, this hope of our calling in Christ. Now notice, it doesn't say, some of your translations, I think maybe the NIV says the hope of your calling. That's not what the Greek says. The Greek says the hope of his calling. It's his calling you out of darkness into light. His calling you out of bondage into freedom. His calling you from being an orphan into being a daughter and a son of the king. It's his glorious work, which, by the way, is the most humbling and hopeful doctrine that you can ever begin to embrace. You know why it's incredibly hopeful? Because there's hope for us. If we consider ourselves and think, how could I be saved? Well, we're saved because of God's great mercy. And therefore, everybody that you encounter, you can never say of anybody, there's no hope for that person. You may have that person in your mind, but the reality of this doctrine says, I am hopeful, and I will pray that the God who changes hearts like he changed my heart, oh, I'm so hopeful. Because I believe that in the twinkling, in that fast, that individual can be my moral, intellectual, uh, and spiritual superior because it's not based on that individual. I have friends who are still absolutely stunned that I am who I am because they knew me. And I have friends in the church who would still say that of going, but Bill, I knew who you were. 
And then I look and go, but this is the hope of the calling? And it's the most humbling as well. Because guess what it does? It takes away all pride. I didn't do anything. The only thing we bring to this table today, by the way, is our mess. But it is the hope of his calling and the beauty. And then he says, I want you to know not only this, I want you to comprehend it. I want you to consider it. I want you to think about it. I want you to take all of your objections to predestination and election, all of the intellectual complications of that, and there are. I'm not diminishing them. They are there, but it is a biblical truth. I want you to bring them all and to think about them and to pray about them and to consider them. He says, I want you to know the hope of your calling. I want you to know the richness of his glorious inheritance in the saints, the richness of the glorious inheritance that you have in the saints that the God who has all things has said to us that he has deposited all of those with Christ, the elder son, who gains all the inheritance of the kingdom. And Christ is saying now, through my sacrifice, I am now giving to you everything that's mine. Sometimes you look around and in the month, you realize that there are more days than money. And those are challenging months and challenging days. We drove around a lot in June and we're going to be driving around a lot in July and our budget is totally out of whack because we're spending so much on money. On money. On money. We're spending a lot on money. I'm buying money. It's expensive. <laughs> on fuel. And so we look and we go, all right, we're just not going to be able to do this. We're not going to be able to do that. And in our culture, we say, oh, how impoverished we are. But oh, to consider this truth of the immeasurable inheritance of the riches. Paul begins this, uh, this whole letter by saying, oh, I wish that you would believe that you have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. Think about that. You've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you know that? Really? Do you know that? Do you consider it and think about it and know that truth to be true? And he says, I want you to know the hope that is your calling. I want you to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And I want you to know his immeasurable greatness towards us, of his power towards us who believe. He gives this little trifecta in there in this first section. According to the working of his great might. And then Paul just gets carried away in verses 20 uh, through 23. He can't help himself. He says, do you want to know uh, what this power is that's at work uh, within you? He says, I pray uh, this for you. And he picks up and he said, this work, this great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and dominion and authority and power, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul's just went, by the way, this prayer is literally one sentence in the Greek. Paul is just going and he goes, I want you to know the power that you have. It is the power that called creation into being out of nothing, and it is the power that raised Christ from the dead. It is the power that seated him in the heavenly places above all rule and authority. It is that power, the power of the third person of the Holy Spirit, which has taken up residency within you. You have power. Praise God. And we walk around as if we are just carrying nine-volt batteries. And we wonder why. 
And Paul is saying, what have you prayed? What do you know to be true? I was speaking with a dear friend whose cancer is back, and we were talking. He said, a lot's changed from the first time her cancer came. And I said, well, before we talk about what's changed, let's talk about what hasn't changed. Here's what hasn't changed. The third person of this trinity is dwelling in you. God is a good God. You have a hope of calling that none of this surprises him. None of that's changed. So we need to know those things, this power. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'll use this quote as a quick transition, said this, I emphasize this great danger of being content with ideas and truths about the Lord Jesus Christ instead of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because what too many of us, especially us good Presbyterians, do is we love to think about doctrine and scripture. We recite it, we argue about it, we get mad at other people who don't believe it with us, but we don't experience it. Now, Paul, in the second part of these prayers in chapter 3, Paul is basically saying this, I want you to experience what you know you know. I want you to now experience what you know you know. Some churches sit on the truth side, and we're all here and doing this. Other churches all on the experience side, and it's all about experiential life. I believe that the two have to come together. That's a false dichotomy, that we're to know and to experience this truth. And the key to this of what Paul says in chapter 3 is the heart. Remember that this is a prayer of Christians who already have Christ dwelling in their hearts. But he says, I want you to know that Christ is dwelling in your hearts. And I want you to know the love of Christ. Well, they already know the love of Christ. They already have the fullness of God. But friends, it's one thing to believe and trust the love of Christ, and it is another thing altogether to experience the love of Christ in your inner being. Some of you who are married understand this. You come and you're talking over the years, and you look and you say, uh, usually it, it may, often, maybe not usually, often, at least in my experience, because I'm married to a woman, Lisa, and she looks at me and she goes, you know, I know you love me. I know that. I just don't feel it right now. I'm not experiencing your love. And what she's inviting me into is saying, I need to experience it. I don't just need to know it. There's something more, and that's what Paul is saying here. Paul is praying because we are not affected by what we know, uh, because we we are affected by what we know to be true as it gets down into our hearts. And the heart or the place uh, of the will is that place that shapes us experientially and existentially and practically. It is the inner being, that heart of hearts. It's the very center of our consciousness and personality. The heart is not simply the seat of emotions. It is so much more. Friends, the heart affects everything. And Paul is saying, I want these truths drilled down into your heart. I want them to take up residency down there so you experience them. So you know them, that they're shaping within your life. It's like I said a single, your biggest problem isn't the circumstance that you're in. It may not even be what you know to be true. It's how are you experiencing what you know to be true. Is it shaping you? Is it forming you? Is it coming around in all of those parts? Paul is praying that we would have power to grasp and to know. He prays this in verses 18 and 19. The ESV says you may have the strength to comprehend, but the real word there is grasp. He says, I want you to have, and we're going to talk about that in a second, hopefully. 
uh, with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To know the breadth and length and height and depth. Paul had just been talking about the temple earlier, and I think he had that imagery in his mind when he was considering walking into the temple with its grandeur and its beauty. And he says, friends, I want you to know how much Christ loves you. I want you to know it so well that it shapes you that it begins to melt your heart, that it begins to draw you. Some of you, I've I've joked, I had some friends who I took on a trip a few years ago, and they still uh, pejoratively just call it, oh, that was that feelings uh, conference that you took me to. And I was like, yeah, it was that feelings conference. It was that conference to try to penetrate down into the heart, to get to that place of desires, to get to that place that shapes us. That's what Paul's asking. I want you to be filled with the fullness of God. The fullness of God always means in Scripture a pattern of life. It doesn't mean a knowledge. It means that you take this knowledge and that it so begins to shape you that your life is affected, that the pattern of your life is affected. Belief is always primary. We agree on that but practice is always necessary. Belief is primary, but practice is necessary. I don't have time to fully unpack that, but what Paul is saying is I want these things to so take root in your life that your life is changed. Do Christians have the capacity for inconsistency and to do incredibly terrible things? The answer is yes, we do. But here's the truth. When the reality of the gospel takes hold of a person's heart, their heart is literally changed, permanently changed, and the change is gradual, but the change is evident. And so, friends, if you're out there and you're saying, oh, I know I love Jesus, I got it, and you can recite all of the truths to me, but you're still out, and every church in all ages has believed one thing for sure, uh, that there's a sexual ethic that says sex is to be between a man and a woman within the context of marriage. And if you're out exploring and doing all that outside, I'm not trying to say that you're not a Christian, but I would say this, you should be concerned. Because what you believe Shaping the heart should lead you to desire to live a life of the fullness of God. To bring it in. And so be careful in the midst of these things is what Paul is saying. I want it to have a fullness. I want it to change your life. Quickly, and we'll end here. How do we do these things? How do we do these things? I'll give you three quick things. You pray, you grasp, and you meditate. You pray, you grasp, and you meditate. Recognize that Paul prays. He doesn't give you a list of ten things to do in order to gain these. Paul said, do you want these things? Pray. They're gifts from God, so pray to the gift giver that he would give these things to you. Now recognize these are not formulaic. If you do these three things, you're not always going to get them. But just like blind Bartimaeus knew where Jesus was going and he put himself strategically in the way of Jesus in the hopes of gaining a blessing, what these are is the strategic placement of ourselves, our thoughts and our emotions in the way of Jesus, knowing that this is the way that he moves and we're putting ourselves in the way, hoping to get the blessing of these things in our lives. Does that make sense? But don't come to me and go, well, Bill, I did these three things and it didn't happen. Well, keep doing them. Keep doing them and keep doing them. Pray, pray, pray. 
And remember, don't just pray for the circumstance. Pray for the depth of these things. Grasp, that word, I want you to be able to grasp. The word grasp is to overtake someone and wrestle them to the ground. Collectively, it means to sack and to plunder a city. What it's really saying is this, is Jesus' words when he was teaching on the Lord's Prayer. I want you to be pounding upon the door of heaven. I want you to be wrestling with God. I want you to be coming to him going, God, I am not leaving this time of prayer until I know these things. And I'm going to come back to you tomorrow and I'm going to ask again and I'm going to come back to you later today and I'm going to ask again. I'm going to grasp them from you. I want them from you. They're desperate. I'm desperate. I need them from you. And then the last thing is meditate. Consider more than just passing. Consider more than just your morning few minutes. Tim Keller, who is a man who has influenced my life greatly in the years that I've listened to his ministry, he wrote this because I had no idea about what it meant to meditate, and he wrote these words about it. He goes, meditate on these truths. I'll tell you, the most fruitful meditation question for me is I read a passage of Scripture and I ask this question. How would my life be different if I knew this to the bottom of my toes? How would I act differently? How would I feel differently? How would I be different if I really knew this? And as I write down 20 or 30 things, I see God at work. And then he says this. He says, then meditate on the thought that Jesus prayed this prayer twice. He prayed it forward and backwards. If you look at these prayers, they're really just a different way of understanding John 17. And Jesus in John 17 would have prayed it forward for us. Father, call them to yourself. Give them a rich inheritance. And would they know the power of the Spirit at work in them? But what this table represents is Jesus praying it in reverse. He prayed it in reverse for himself. He said, Father, call them but reject me. In order for you to call them, I have to be rejected. Father, in order for them to gain my inheritance, I have to be made worthless. And Father, that power which is to raise them up is the power that has to crush me down. So if you want your heart moved, consider Christ. Consider him at this table when Jesus said, I want you to know in your head and in your heart that I came and gave you all things I'm going to pray and invite the team to come up, and then we'll come to the table. Father, we do thank you for these things. And we pray that our prayers would be shaped differently, that we would pray differently, that we would expect differently, that we would grapple with you differently, that we would know the beauty, the height, the depth, the length, the breadth of the love that we have in Christ, the power that's in us, all of these things. But more than anything else, we would know the costliness of your grace, that it cost Christ everything to love us. And so as we come now to this table, I pray that our hearts would be convicted, that we would be drawn to Christ, not to ourselves, that you would set aside these elements from their common and ordinary use to this, their sacred use. And the Father, you would make this a means of grace to us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.